And this morning we're going to explore Psalm 4. Psalm 4 is a trust written by King David. It's a psalm of trust, rather, written by King David. You can kind of break it into four parts. One, or audiences, if you will. One, David kind of calls upon God in verse 1. And then he speaks to man in verses 2 and 3. Then he speaks to himself in verses 4 and 5, calming himself before the Lord. And lastly, David rests in the blessings of God in verses 6 through 8. So David calls upon God as he has done before. He affirms his trust and confidence in God and calls the people to God to pray in light of that confidence and trust in God. So I'm going to read it, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to begin. So I will point out, you know, some people have asked this question actually before, before I read it. Some of you may know, some of you may have heard me before speak of the, the fact that I use the King James, our official church uh, Bible, I believe is the ESV. Ben, correct me if I'm wrong. This is not me endorsing or proclaiming that the King James is the only Bible, or it's better, or it's higher. It's a preferential thing for me personally, particularly with the Psalms. I was a terrible student in English class. I didn't turn in many assignments. I didn't read most of the books I was supposed to. I thought I was better and above it. Turns out I was kind of wrong. But the bottom line is, I, for me personally, the Lord has used the King James, particularly in the Psalms, to use the language of the Psalms to deeply enrich my own personal blessings in life. So that's just kind of the background of the King James versus the ESV as far as my personal preference. So I'll begin. Psalm 4, to the chief musician on Neganoth, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing, Salah? But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will, sorry, godly himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still, Salah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There may be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy consonance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for us this day. You know, be with us today as we come together in fellowship and before you in thanks and worship and praise as we are. Lord, open our hearts to your word and what you have for us this day. May we be edified, conflicted, challenged, comforted and assured by your word, Lord, not mine. May our hearts respond in thanks, knowing you hear our prayers, and you answer our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, so before we kind of dive in, it's useful to give a little context to Psalm 4. Uh, kind of, you can, clearly we can see, you know, David, the psalmist, calling upon God in distress. You know, Psalm 4 and Psalm 3 are often tied together. Psalm 3 being the physical distress and threat 
of uh, Absalom, Dave's son. If you go back to Second uh, Samuel chapter 13, you'll kind of see the beginnings of, you know, Absalom, you know, usurps his father, kind of believes some bad theology, prophecy, kind of, kind of convinces others to go along with them. And ultimately what happens is Absalom rebels against David in Hebron, declares himself king. Mostly all of Israel and Judah support Absalom. David flees his castle, his kingdom, scatters out towards the river Jordan with only his bodyguard and the Cherethites and the Pelophites. He flees. And then ultimately kind of, you know, I'm not trying to recap all of Second Samuel here. I encourage you to please go read it. There's a tremendous amount of things to unpack and distress and what God has for his people uh, in the reign of David in particular. But they come to this battle in Ephraim Woods where ultimately you know, David wins. Absalom is killed against David's wishes and he's defeated. So Psalm 3 kind of likely addresses the physical harm that David was facing in the, in the being pursued, in the fleeing, being usurped, his own people turning against God and turning against David. And Psalm 3 likely deals with David in the distress of his reputation. You know, it's in these circumstances, both internal and external, we see King David's heart. It's a heart rent with complaint and anguish against slanderous enemies. A heart filled with anger, grief, anxiety. A heart that knows, seeks, and trusts to find refuge and peace in God. David speaking to God to man and to himself, resting in peace in the sufficiency of God, ultimately we'll see that Psalm 4 is an appeal to God for deliverance from distress, that God hears our prayers, he answers our cries, and that we can finally rest in the peaceful presence of God in that answer. So he begins with the chief musician in Negative. So if you're kind of wondering what that means, that means, hey, to there's kind of some, some people who ascribe to the the chief musician is God. So there's biblical scholars that refer to when they address the chief musician, they're meaning God is the ultimate chief musician. Other biblical scholars tend to ascribe it's literally the chief musician, the choir master, the person charged with overseeing the musicians for these psalms. So to the chief musician on Negeneth, it means like handheld or stringed instruments. David addresses the psalm as he often does, first by crying out to God, hear me when I call God of my righteousness, you know, knowing who God is, what God has done with hope and trust and what God will do. God, God, hear me. I am David. You, you know me. You breathe life into me. You form me in my mother's womb. I am, I'm here, Lord. I'm calling on you, O God, in distress again. Perhaps my own son has usurped me. My people have abandoned me. I have fled. I cannot face this apart from you. I don't know what to do. All that I had is gone. You know, my, the way I've ruled your kingdom and, and discerned what you had for your people. You've always been there for me, God, in the past. Hear me. Be merciful again. You know, David begins like he often does. And some of you are familiar with my uh, love of a famed preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He has a, a book that accompanies the Psalms called A Treasury of David. It's one I often go to when reviewing the Psalms because, let's face it, you know, Spurgeon's a much better soul winner than I could ever be, a much better orator and author. 
and he rightly often defines the beauty that's packed in. He had this to say. This is another instance of David's common habit of pleading past mercies as a ground for present favor. Here in verse 1, he reviews his Ebenezer's and takes comfort from them. It is not to be imagined that he who has helped us in six troubles will leave us in the seventh. God does nothing by halves, and he will never cease to help us until we cease to need. You know, King David, a godly man, begins his prayer in distress first by speaking to God. Because of who God is, David addressing him as his God of righteousness. You know, God, you have protected me from my enemies before. You have given me refuge. You've delivered me from... David, I was a small shepherd that stood before a giant man in front of a giant army, an armor that did not fit With your confidence, Lord, you delivered me from certain death. You have forgiven my many sins against you. Lord, David, I'm not seeking favor among men here, God. Lord, Lord, I'm not asking you in verse 1 to say, God, here I am before you. God, I want you to give me back my castle. God, I want you to give me back my kingdom, my treasure, return and reconcile my... He says, God, I am seeking continued mercy from you. And how it must have felt in this moment for David. You know, fortunately, I've never known these kind of tensions. Spoiler alert, I've never been a king, never had a castle, don't own a vast treasure. You know, my oldest son has not rebelled against me and tried to overthrow me. He's currently in a church in Lynchburg right now, attending Liberty. My youngest son's in the church. You know, so I, I cannot imagine, you know, the, the level of which David must feel frustrated, alone, or abandoned. You know, David anointed by God to be king. You know, however, I will say that 100%, you know, studies have shown 100% of all humans will face distress in their lifetime, if you didn't know this, both internal and external. And so what might those distresses look like today? You know, do we have a trusted colleague at work that's betrayed us, maybe taking credit? for our hard work? Do we have a spouse that is cast aside, that's dismissive of us? Have we been recently diagnosed with a terrifying medical diagnosis? Have we lost a loved one? Do we have prodigals in our children? Do we have parents that have abandoned us? Have we ever felt helpless, worthless, or hopeless? Just a quick, quick show of hands. That's a little heavy. Sorry. Quick show of hands. Is there anyone here who has never felt distressed this morning? I just want to make sure that I'm not missing the mark. So like, you know, like the old Baptist thing with every head bowed, you know, all eyes shut. All right. So right. We, we've all experienced distress. Every one of us. You don't have to be an anointed king called by God to, to oversee his people to know hurt and pain. You don't have to be King David to feel the level which his heart is broken in his relationships with man. But we would do well to be like David here in verse 1, when in these moments of distress, rather than demanding God answer the prayer in our manner, we can plead for God to hear our prayer as he has done before, requesting his mercy. Like David. God has already answered David before, 
David comes to him in the comfort and rest and assurance, knowing that God hears his prayers. You know, he's anointed him as king, protected him from Saul, forgave his adultery of Bathsheba, although it came with judgment, forgave his murder of her husband Uriah. You know, God have mercy upon me, your, your, your servant. Here I am, David. I'm before you. I understand, Lord, that my sins against you are many. God, you, right, you can rightly and justly use my enemies to extinguish me. Like I'm deserving of your judgment. And God, I'm seeking your mercy. Mercy. You know, the interesting thing to take note here is that David is not necessarily simply trying to avoid his enemies, but rather he is fleeing towards the mercy of God. You know, David's not sitting here saying, God, take my enemies, turn them north, have, have, have them you know, lay down their arms. He's saying, have mercy upon me in your manner, Lord. Friends, when in distress, we would do well to be like David and to cry out to God as, as we are. Broken and all, honestly, transparently, brutally. Beginning with reminding ourselves of who God is and what God has already done in our lives. Knowing he hears our prayers and setting our hearts on him and not the world and fleeing to his mercy. You know, once, once David has spoken to God in verse 1, he says, God, here I am. It's me, David. You alone, God, not me. You alone are the author of my righteousness. You have made much of me when I was in distress. You've helped me before. Hear my prayers and have mercy on me. And immediately after that, David turns his heart to address men. Speaking in verse 2, O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing? Salah. Yeah, I think it should, I should take a brief moment here to point out uh, the word salah, right? You might see it come up often, particularly in the Psalms. Uh, there's kind of, kind of a couple of ways people think about it. Uh, primarily the way I tend to ascribe to is the uh, manner in which it's simply a pause. Like, so if there was a group of musicians singing this psalm, they would get to the end of verse 2 and it'd be like a four-measure break before they begin in verse 3. Similar to kind of what we, we do when we sing songs here. You know, we finish a verse, there's a measure break. So, so, O sons of men, how long have you turned my glory into shame? You love vanity. You don't like that which is good. You know, there's a tremendous amount to unpack here. You know, David now sets his heart on the world around him. Once centered on God and who God is in David's life. You know, as I was preparing this week, I considered a number of ways to explore these verses. And what kind of stuck out the most for me was David's courage in verses 2 and 3, his assertiveness and his suddenness. You know, in first speaking to God, David has a broken heart centered on God, who he is, what he has done, asking for mercy as he has done before. And from that heart posture, he's able to move in the courage of God and rebuke man. 
You know, Spurgeon noted, after all, he says, he who dares to face his maker will not tremble before frail men, right? Like, if you have the courage to come before God as honest and as broken as you are and say, God, here I am, I'm in distress, you know, once you've faced God in that spiritual moment, then what, what do you have to fear, the fear of man? You know, centering on, on God, David steps out into the battlefield of spiritual warfare. Is our world today any better or different? You know, David's, David's glory, you, you could spend probably a month of Sundays on, on just David, his life and his ministry, his trappings, his fallings, maybe even a whole summer. But I, I would ascribe to you that David's glory is not necessarily his political achievements or his battlefield wins, but is his heart for God, his ministry, his heart for the people of God, to love and to obey and to worship God. You know, David desires God's people to glorify God. And when he looks out at the world, he says they're not. They're not. They're, they're, they're not loving God. You know, one of our elders put it this way, you know, David's deeply invested in the people around him, knowing God, serving God, and glorifying God. And when they don't, it hurts his heart. You know, this is much like, you know, Elijah. I think when I, when, I, when I did the sermon on Obadiah, I think if you recall, I talked about the murder of a hundred prophets. Anyway, Elijah in 1 Kings 19, similar to David finding himself here, right? David's being, the people of God have turned against God and turned against David and are pursuing him and he's fleeing here in Psalm 4 and 2 Samuel. Elijah in 1 Kings people of God have turned their back on God. They've turned their back on the people God has called, particularly Elijah. And he's fleeing. And he flees to Hebron. And in verse 10 of 1 Kings 19, Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. I, Elijah, I'm jealous for you. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. They throw down thine altars. And slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek to take my life away. You know, so the, so the people God's called, alienated, pursued by the world, forsaken by the world, but not abandoned by God. You know, when we look around our world today, do we, do we see similar things? You know, one of the things I, I tend to notice first and foremost in our world today is not only the celebration of sin as right, but the demand that we as Christians celebrate it ourselves. That we should forgo all we know and have been taught and learned in the Bible and God's Word. We should forsake all that and celebrate sin as the world does. You know, even, even our leaders today, many of them loving after vanity, Mocking Christ, mocking our ministries, martyring saints, not just here, but with the world over. You know, murdering the innocent unborn and demanding the right to do so. Do our hearts break as David or Elijah's did in these moments? You know, when, when you are faced with the sins of others, how does that, how does that feel? Was it on David or Elijah 
to save the entire world? Does it rest on us today to stop the evils of this world? Does it, is it on solely us to stop all adultery, idolatry, corruption, lies, thieving, murder? Is it on us solely? Is it on me as I stand here today to individually pursue and stop all blasphemy? I would offer it, it doesn't. You know, we, we, certainly we should fight the good fight of faith as referred to in 1 Timothy 6.12. But it's not solely on us. We are not alone. As I look around here this morning, you know, I may be the one standing up here under these hot lights, you know, with a shirt that may be slightly wrinkled, a sock that has a hole in the right toe, and know that I'm not alone. I look around and see each one of you and know that we are in fellowship with one another by our commonality and the tie that binds us through the Holy Spirit. And we have been set aside, as we see here in verse 3. The Lord has set him apart that is godly for himself, and the Lord will hear when I call unto him. You know, in this, in this couple of verses, David ponders, you know, how long, how long, O Lord, you know, even, even I, I will ponder sometimes, how long will the ungodly get their way? How long will the world continue to mock God, be dismissive of God? How long will they cheat, murder, abuse, and be made much of for doing so? David knew in verse 3 that God elects or sets aside godly people. You know, God sets aside the righteous apart from himself and unto himself. He has from the very beginning. You know, God setting aside his people, continuing even to this, this very day, you know, by the grace through faith, grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, David knows God has set his people aside. You know, David would have been taught and set under the teachings of his forefathers, the covenant God made with Abraham. But God set David aside. God anointed David as king. David has the assurance that the Lord will hear him when he calls upon him. He has done so before, and he trusts to know that God will hear him when he calls upon him again. And David knows that prayer to God does not go unheard nor unanswered. You know, in God's word, the Bible, I... I, I kind of left it at the mark at 150. There's a number of ways. But I'll say 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 that the word prayer is mentioned at least over 150 times in the Bible. You know, many verses assure us that God hears our prayers. Uh, a couple of mine that come to favor, Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but hears the prayer of the righteous. And then in John nine thirty one, now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. So like David, we can know and trust that God, those of us in him, when we come to him in prayer, we are heard. We know our prayers do not go unheard. They don't go unanswered. We're not forsaken. God is not silent. He's not distant or far. You know, at times we may, we may come before God in distress unsure of what to do next 
unsure how to proceed forward and want God to answer so desperately in a certain way that we see fit. And we have to know and trust that God's perfect will will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And it may not be in our timing or our desire, but we must rest and trust in him. So when when looking at the world, so David talked to God, centers his heart on God, and gives him the courage to kind of look out at man and be like, you guys are terrible, the state of the world is bad, how long are you going to love things you shouldn't, pursue things you shouldn't, mock, rebuke, worship false idols? I asked a few minutes ago, how how would that make us feel when when we're confronted by the sins of others? We continue on in verse 4. Perhaps we might feel angry. Right? When, when we watched MSNBC, and forgive me because I don't know all the news channels, so I'm going to try and list them here. MSNBC, CNN, Fox, Wavy 10, uh, News Channel 3, News Nation, I think is the new one. Anyway, when you watch the news and you're confronted by the, the murders that happen each night in our local cities, or when you're confronted by political leaders from any number of parties saying things that are clearly not true, that are wrong. And when you see our leaders, you know, mock God, how does that make you feel? You know, it's easy for me, and in consuming what the world has on display on that platter, to become frustrated and angry. And it's important, since we brought up the King James early, or rather, when we read verse 4 here, it says, Stand in awe and sin not. And I'll kind of stop right there for the moment. So several translations, if you will, use the phrase, stand in awe. Many, including the ESV in our pew Bible this morning, say, Stand in anger and sin not. Stand in anger and sin not. So it's important, you know, when you look kind of at other other scriptures, it's important to point out maybe some differences in the two translations. You know, clearly we can see when David looks at what is going on in his circumstances, one can easily draw that, that he is easily could be frustrated. You know, stand in anger, stand in awe, and sin not. You know, David has come before the Lord in distress. He is concerned with the souls of the people of God their behavior, the behavior of his own son. I mean, Absalom, his, you know, the, his own son has is, is turned his people against him. You know, when taking into account what he has experienced, David is frustrated. His people, God's people, his own son turned against David and against God. You know, when, when looking at verse 4, I think it's important to kind of take a moment, and I think you could probably spend at least one entire Sunday on is it sinful to be angry? You know, is it, is it sinful to take stock of what we see in the world and be angry? Or when we see the sins of others and be angry? When we see people sin against God and be angry? Well, I'll offer briefly that I think yes and no. The Bible, Bible kind of parses sin into two categories. You know, the one being biblical anger. As we can see here, David says, stand in awe and sin not. So, or stand in anger and sin not. So there, 
clearly in this verse and in another verse I'll get to in a minute, there, there's biblical room for we can be angry when we see these sins of others. What we do with it, how we respond, is where the delineation occurs from biblical anger and into sinful anger, in my opinion, when reading the Bible. You know, the Bible teaches us that God is angry with the wicked in Psalm 711. We know from Mark 3 that Jesus was angry in the synagogue. You know, Ephesians 4.26 mirrors verse 4 here in that it, it tells us, Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. So, so, when does sin, so when does anger become sinful? It becomes sinful clearly from you know, Ephesians a minute ago where it lingers or where it centers on pride or when it sitters on and boils over leaving nothing but destruction in its wake. Do we get angry when we see the sins of others? You know, I'm going to use a couple examples here. Uh, one, one's pretty extreme because I think it illustrates well the biblical, what the King James often refers to as righteous indignation, anger. You know, like acknowledging, yes, this is bad, yes, I'm angry, versus sinful anger. And then I'll try and give a more practical example. So for me, personally, when I, when I consider the sin of abortion... My heart breaks equally for the unborn child that has no voice as it does for the mother in circumstances that are so dire she feels that is her only option. And I logically, internally cannot comprehend beyond that moment other than to feel angry. Like I said, I feel my heart breaks equally for the unborn child and for a mother that feels that is the only circumstances that God desires for her. Now there are two ways that that anger can prompt a response. And you can look in the world and you can see. One is an opportunity where you have an opportunity to pray for that unborn child and that mother, to meet them where they're at. Support places like the Tidewater Crisis Pregnancy Center. Walk alongside them and care for them. I think think that's a way perhaps where where God can use anger to prompt a loving response from his people to serve others and to glorify him. So, I guess that's a pretty extreme example. On the converse, the other application that, that people respond in anger and have historically to this is, is, a, is a vein where people start off justifying sinning against others out of anger for their sin. So what does that look like? That means means someone sits there confronted with the same scenario I just described, reads scripture, and they manage to justify and reconcile in their heart that they should commit murder and bomb abortion clinics. You know, like I said, it's a pretty extreme example you know, do, do we look at this sin and do we justify 
sinning ourselves in response? How do we respond to anger of our own sin in our own lives? Do we allow anger to, to justify our continual sin, sinning against others? Or do we repent and be still and know we're not God? So the more practical example, I know that's, that's heavy, but I think, I think it's an example where you can look and say there is a loving, biblical response to a righteous anger. And then on the other hand, you can see where people are justifying and their anger is now sinful in that they're committing additional sins against others. Now, a more practical example might be our day-to-day lives, right? I, think, I don't think any one of us here looking to go to those extremes I just described. But in our daily lives, you know, yesterday Lauren and I were at uh, Home Depot and we were doing this thing where kids are building a little workshop with other, their parents. And next to us was this table, and, uh, or at the end of the table, rather, was this family. And this poor father um, was angry with his son because the son, you know, like five- or four-year-old son, wasn't doing it the right way or the right order or putting things in the right place. And uh, at the same time, like, I'm just there kind of relaxed and laughing, and, you know, Franklin made my thumb bleed hitting it, and I didn't get mad. There's even one, one particular Saturday where I think I walked away with three or four Band-Aids on different fingers. You know, so... Thankfully, the Lord had given me grace in those moments, you know, to respond accordingly. But often there's moments where I don't. Often you can only take so many hammers to the thumb before you sin and speak in a manner of anger to a small child. So how are we with justifying our continual sin? How do we respond? You know, it says, stand in anger, stand in awe, and sin not. And then David says, commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. You know, in this moment, you know, standing there, angry at the sin he sees, the sin of others, don't sin. Reflect in your heart. Be still. So, what, so in those moments where we're confronted with the sins of others that anger us, we're confronted with the sins in our own life that anger us, the best response we can do is to stop and be still. You know, somebody has wronged me, somebody has said lies about me, a co-worker's taking credit for work that's not mine or that's not theirs. That makes me angry. I can either take my vengeance out on, I can be judge and justifier over this person, or I can be still and be reminded that I'm not God, that God is sovereign. I can turn the other cheek, demonstrating humility of Christ to that person. It's not upon us to both be judge and justifier. You know, in these circumstances, David in his frustration takes time to pause. You know, be still. The old, the old thing for kids, right? Stop, count to ten. You know, two kids fighting over a toy, like, go to your corners, count to ten, calm down. Don't act impulsively. Don't act in hatred or in anger. But to be still and be reminded of God's promises. You know, it looks, what does this look like for us? When we lay down at night, it can easily, you know, when we watch the news or, you know, consumed a massive amounts of wrongs on social media... You know, we can, we can easily be frustrated. We can be mad. Our leaders at best lie by omission. Our culture idolizes and worships sin. 
demanding that we all celebrate and idolize it with them. Here in Psalm 4, verse 4, David reminds us to be still. No, God is sovereign, not us. Like David, it is in these moments we should commune with our own hearts, remember the lives we had apart from Christ, and now the lives we have in him. Call ourselves to a reckoning. Repent. Preach the gospel to ourselves, as David does here. You know, verse 5, David says, Offering the sacrifices of righteousness and putting the trust in the Lord. You know, so you're laying there, you're angry, and you're still. You remember what God has done for you. You're coming before him in distress, looking for mercy. Take the time to remind yourself of the mercy that's already been given. You know, David doesn't simply check a box. He doesn't look to say, look, God, I've prayed. I'm in distress, God. I've prayed. I've checked my box. He wants to make the sacrifices of righteousness. And so in, in David's time, what that meant was they had the sacrificial lamb, was the lamb in which they made the sacrifice on the altar that washed away their sins. And, and that was the sacrifices of righteousness. They did that act in knowing and trusting that the Lord would provide. You know, so David kind of reminding him like, hey, God, I want to do these right acts of godliness. You have, already, you have already been there for me. Like, these are the things you've done in my life. These are the things you've done in the life of your people. And that's what we should do, right? Just be still. Put the TV on mute and put the phone down. God, you got me through this tough time at work. You got me through a marriage that was loveless and godless. But most importantly, God, you sacrificed your son for me. You know, like David, we should fully trust in God for the outcome and not ourselves. For when we finally are still and remember that God has set us aside and he's written his words on our hearts and fully trusting in him, Remembering, regardless of our circumstances, our trust lies fully in him. We can receive the full measure of God's blessings. Like David does here, beginning in verse 6. You know, in verse 6, there may be many that say, who will show us any good? So up to this point, David has come before God, said, God, here I am. You've answered me before. I know you hear my prayers. Have mercy on me. Verse 2 and 3 kind of looks out on man and says, how long will you continue to do these things and put glory, and shame the glory of the ministry I have? Um, in verse 3, you know, God has set me aside. And we see here in verse 6, David begins to, to go from the distress he had in his heart, the anger and frustration he feels when he looks at the world, And he lands in the peace and full measure of God. So David looks again, once again on the world. There may be many that say, who will show us any good? You know, they're, they're people that need to see. They don't believe that what God has done before. They don't have faith. Or maybe, it, maybe it's people that, that out of their... Out of their desires, you know, the, the people of the world cry out, show us good, the ungodly looking for good that satisfies their urges. 
Right? This was true in David's day. It's true in our day. People saying things like, God, show me the money. Make me popular. Make me successful. Give me a beautiful spouse. Give me children that listen every time I speak to them and do what I say. Spoiler alert, it doesn't happen. Right? You know, but, but it's, it's a heart posture the world has as if acting at God's at their disposal to do their will. Which is a misunderstanding of our positional relationship with God. But David's not like that. Not David. You know, David the godly rests in the sufficiency of God. God, lift your light upon us. God, your presence is sufficient. We see, put your... Oh, where? Sorry, lift up thou light of thy countenance upon us. Shine your light on us. We talked about it in our uh, call to worship this morning. You have sufficiently assured me. You bless me. Your fullness overflows my cup. Here David begins to finally find comfort in the distress, in the presence of God. And in that presence, God has put gladness in his heart more than any excesses of the world, right? right? So, so, God, I know you made me king. I know my own son has betrayed me. My people, your people are pursuing me. I'm in a camp and I'm not in my palace. God, I'm homeless. I'm nearly friendless. I'm penniless. I have nothing. Few people came with me out of pity. But God, you, your fullness alone is sufficient. God, I, in this moment of distress, being pursued by my own son and your people who are sinning against you, into your mercy I flee, God, leaving behind the wants of this world. God, I rest fully in you. You alone are sufficient. Not the things this world has to offer, not my kingdom, not my palace, not my treasures, not even my own son, my friends. Lord, being in the fullness of your presence is better than all this world has to offer. God, I came to you distressed, broken, shattered, pursued, wronged, hated, hated by those who love me. I came angry, I came frustrated. Saddened. But now, Lord, in your presence, I can fully rest my heart. In spite of my circumstances, now, Lord, I am able to lay down in peace. You have filled my heart with gladness, and I can sleep. For the Lord, you alone make me safe. You know, David, a king, military leader, doesn't say here, let me, let me put two men on the tower in the east corner tonight because I'm fearful of, like, spies coming to murder me. David doesn't say, I'm going to stay up all night because I'm worried about those who pursue me are going to murder me. David doesn't stay up in anxiety, restless and sleepless on what's going to happen when the morning comes. You know, when taking fully stock his relationship with God, the dire circumstance he finds himself in, the sins that the people of God are committing against God, the abandonment, betrayal of his own son. David doesn't say, put more people to watch this camp so I can sleep. 
David closes his eyes like we do nightly, fully trusting in God for his safety. David knew dark days. Friends, I offer, we, we have here. I don't think anybody here hasn't faced a dark day. Maybe some of the kids, maybe your darkest day was like your favorite toy broke. Maybe, maybe some of you have darker days than that. But at some time you will. We'll know more yet to come. How do we respond in distress? When we take stock of the world around us, are we dismayed, mad, and angry, and act in retribution? Or do we come to God in prayer, entering into a divine, divine communication between the Holy Spirit within us and the God the Father in heaven? We can all, upon God, we can all call upon God in prayer as David did. We know he hears our prayers. When we feel dismayed, we can know and trust that God has already answered our prayers through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus, a Savior, has come. He will return. Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself. He inclined to us. You know, endured the most brutal murder in all of history. He did all that, reconciling us to God. So, friends, when we come to God in distress... We can fully rest and sleep at night while the world around us lusts after vanity, knowing and trusting that God has already heard our prayers and answered them in Jesus. Love of vanity will not endure eternally. God will not be mocked. And Jesus, making God both just and justifier, restoring us to him. God will ultimately establish his kingdom through our eternal Savior. May we know him. May we place our faith in him. May we treat his people well. May we love our neighbors as ourselves. And may we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Which, consequently, is what we do when we celebrate the sacrament of communion. So communion is an opportunity where we come together as a family. 1 Corinthians 11, 23-22. 23 through 26 say on the night when Jesus was prayed the Lord Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is broken for you do this and remember some me in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying this is the cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you eat and as often as you drink and remember some me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine or cup You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this morning, if you're a Christian, you know, if you've trusted in Christ, and if you are a part of the people of God, this is an opportunity to remember the gospel together and to celebrate that God has already answered our prayers in distress. This is our opportunity to remember as a family. So after I pray, the musicians are going to start, they're going to come up here, they're going to start playing. We invite you to come take communion with us. Come forward down the middle aisle and receive the elements. There's gluten-free crackers. There's grape juice. Go back to your seats. Take a moment. Take time to repent of, reflect, commune with your own heart. Reflect upon and repent any sins. Receive the grace of God to forgive you. And rejoice that we have been reconciled to God. And then eat and drink. But if you're not a Christian, 
We ask that you don't take communion. You know, the Bible specifically teaches against it. But instead, that we ask that you take Christ. We ask you to accept Christ to save you from sin, save you from the wrath of God, so that you can be reconciled to him and enjoy his peace forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God of our righteousness, hear our prayers. Hear our prayers in the night as we come to you in distress. Have mercy upon us. Enlarge us in our distress. Lord, we trust you and we know who you are. We know what you have done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, that you hear our prayers. Calm our hearts, Lord. Quell our angers. May we be still and know that you alone are God. Shine your light upon us. Lord, may we rest in peace and safety of Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.